This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 53 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Greg Reith. Greg began his career with U.S. Army Special Forces, with a specialty in operations and intelligence. Greg's experience includes counterintelligence, analysis, collection at both tactical and strategic levels. At the end of his career in the military, he transitioned into information technology and was an information systems security officer. Most recently, Greg led the T-Mobile Threat Intelligence Team as a senior security engineer for threat intelligence and developed the T-Mobile Threat Intelligence Strategy. We'll learn about his career, get his thoughts on leadership and assembling teams, and how he's learned to integrate threat intelligence into his work. He'll also describe a technique he calls adversarial focus. We'll learn what that is and why it's important to understand. Stay with us. My intelligence experience starts back when I I was in the service. So I spent 21 years as a special forces operator, and my specialty was intelligence and operations. Um, And I've been through the basic course, an intermediate course, and then some advanced intelligence training. I I did collection. uh, I did analysis. um, I did tactical and strategic. And after that, I was a director of security for uh, a company called Winforce. It was about a billion-dollar startup. Um, and it took fiber to the curb back in like 2000. After that, I, I had a software company for a period of time. After that, um, I did mostly consulting work. I did consulting work for AT&T, uh, for Microsoft, uh, for some other big companies. And that was focused around risk assessment, uh, security penetration testing, security architecture, uh, threat assessment, things of that nature. Eventually, I, I ended up at T-Mobile. Uh, I was there for a period of time, and now I'm primarily just consulting and training. Can you uh, describe for us uh, working with T-Mobile for such a large uh, communications company? How does a company like that approach threat intelligence? When I went to the role, they didn't have a program. Uh, so I basically developed the program and matured it as best I could over time. I, I think one of the, the big things about doing intelligence into some of the bigger companies is is you have to have someone that's got practical experience at doing it and, and has had the right kind of training. There's a lot of stuff in the internet that's not correct. You know, it really takes someone that's got that capability to build that kind of a program. T-Mobile did put some money to it. We did have a small team. It kind of really depends on what your organization's goals are. Some people don't want to know what the threats are and how they might impact. Some do. Hmm. And intelligence is expensive. It's very resource intensive. It's time intensive. It is not a real-time capability. It's overtime, and a lot of vendors are really selling you information as opposed to intelligence, and you're trying to develop intelligence. So there's a lot of confusion in the market in general, and it kind of takes someone to be able to bring all that together and, and kind of define what it is you really need to do and, and, and the best approach to go about doing it. So they, they gave me a lot of leeway in, in terms of setting up the initial capability. And, you know, like I said, depending on and goals and objectives and, and, and things of that nature. It's, you know, the, the ultimate goal of an intelligence team is to be able to develop warning intelligence and reduce strategic and tactical surprise. You know, it's not really to support a response team and it's not really to support a team specifically with focus. It's its, its own entity and it supports multiple teams. And I think sometimes organizations get a little bit 
confused about that in some cases, but it was uh, it was a good experience, and uh, yeah, I'm glad I did it. Can you describe for us I mean, how did you promote the value of threat intelligence to the people you worked for? You, you said it was expensive. Um, how do you make the case that it's worthwhile? So, in in order to make the case, you you have to you know companies are it, it's a lot different than working for an agency or the military or someone where where they understand it and. Uh, and they have budgets for it, and they have dedicated collection teams and so on. So because it is expensive, if you're going to do it correctly, you have to be able to quantify what what you're going to get out of it at the end. And unfortunately, intelligence is one of those things that does take time. You know, it's not something where you can always have intelligence every week that's literally, you know, making significant difference in terms of IROI and, and things like that. So you kind of have to be able to develop some low-hanging fruit in the form of maybe some enhanced information as you're developing intelligence and then over time as you present intelligence and and, and, it, and it's meaningful, then, then it gives them the, the benefit of, of having some forewarning about things that are happening either within the industry or at the organization level uh, and so on. And there's a lot of shifting that goes on over time and you have to continually take into account. So what you got to be able to do is you have to be able to define a program that's going to be cost effective to some extent uh, but it's going to provide some actionable capability. Having said that, actionable capability uh, can be kind of, in some cases, more difficult to develop because sometimes you do have some hard timelines and, and intelligence can be fairly difficult to develop. So uh, it's about having a well-rounded program and having the capacity to augment staff when you need to through a third party that has capability of pulling in intelligence and doing analysis when you need that kind of help. Uh, but then having the right tools in place that allow you to do data collection analysis uh, and then being able to present that to to decision makers. Now, ultimately, um, you should be presenting intelligence for decision makers to make to, to use to make decisions with. So I had to develop a strategy and the strategy was was an all-encompassing strategy. It did cost a bit of money. T-Mobile did end up hiring some staff specifically for developing intelligence. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, I had to show them that, well, this is what it can do, and this is what you're going to get out of it, and uh, and so on. And so uh, they they recognize the value in it. Uh, I'm curious, um, you know, what ex- what from your experience in the military were you able to bring to the private sector? Were there specific things that uh, you felt uh, benefited your ability to act there? Oh yeah, so it gave me an understanding of what intelligence was in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot different than what a lot of people think it is. And, you know, it's because a lot of people just haven't really been exposed to it significantly in the past. So, you know, I learned about the intelligence cycles. I learned about collection. I did collection. I did analysis. Um, It it takes probably 10 years to really develop a a decent analyst. And that's because there's a lot of mindset and bias issues that they have to be able to to address. Uh, And first, before you can do that, you got to be able to identify the fact that they even exist. And then you start going into, you know, becoming an intuitional expert takes a lot of time. Uh, it's not something that happens overnight and you have to have a lot of practical application at doing it to be able to to, to be effective at it. You can other, use other techniques like structured uh, analysis, which help you reduce mindset and things of that nature. And then you can use some sense-making techniques for some of the more wicked problems. But all in all, you have to have the background. The, the background has to exist if you're going to be very effective at doing it. And, and you have to have practical application if you're going to get to a point to where you can produce intelligence with with some decent amount of accuracy. 
You you just used the term uh, intuitional expert. Can you describe to me what that means and and uh, how it how it benefits? Intuitional analysis is what a lot of the the more experienced intelligence analysts will will rely on, and and then sometimes they also employ structured analysis techniques and so on. But intuition, everybody has intuition, and there's two types of intuitional awareness. There's expert domain based, and then there's heuristic. Uh, so uh, in order for someone to be an expert, do, expert domain-based analyst, they, they have to have a lot of deep level knowledge into a particular area that they're doing analysis in. Uh, so if I look at some indicators, for example, or I look at some signposts, then I can kind of determine what they are. And, and intuitional awareness and intuitional assessment works very, very well from an expert perspective, provided that what you're looking at fits within the left and right boundaries of uh, of your domain of expertise. Hmm. Uh, heuristic and heuristics is is really about using intuition and using a set of rules that you can apply to a particular scenario or situation where it fits the rule, uh, and then you can make an, an intuitional assessment as to you know the validity of what you're seeing based on um, how it fits into that rule. But it's primarily what you'll come across from an, an intuitional perspective when you're developing intelligence. You know, we often talk about uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and how um, that can supplement the work that an analyst does, but that it really is up to an analyst. And, and I guess the machine learning tools don't have the capability yet to have that sense that this just doesn't feel right. So, yeah, I mean, intelligence requires a person to make a judgment and in some cases an analytic leap uh, relative to an analysis and and yeah machines aren't quite you know to the same level humans are at this point but the other thing too is you have to have the right platform so when you look at an attack for example uh, most of the tools today are, are primarily point in time and a lot of sophisticated attack uh, attacks happen over time you have to be able to correlate what's already happened to what's happening in the now uh, to be able to develop trending and um, you know be able to forecast things so you have to have a platform that gives you the capability of link-relating data on ingestion, and then you can apply machine learning on top of that to, to really develop some, some meaningful intelligence. Just applying machine learning to a single-scope domain of information doesn't give you the capability to take into account the other aspects that might have impact to that particular analysis. So when you start looking at problems in general, you know you can have tame problems and wicked problems, which are either simple or complex, and the complex problems normally span multiple domains. So if you're not analyzing data across multiple domains and you don't understand things like adversarial focus, then you're missing out on a big part of the data that you need to, to accurately be able to do an assessment. It doesn't matter if you're using machine learning or not. If you're not using the right data, then uh, the analysis that you do at the end of the day is, is not going to be as accurate as, as, as it could be. What about human-to-human -human collaboration? If you've got a team of analysts and you know one of you has expertise in a certain area and another one has expertise in, a, in another area, how do you foster that sort of communication to, to say to your colleague, you know, hey, I've I got a funny feeling about this. What do you think? <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, I used to, when I was at T-Mobile, I did some training. I trained a team and, and I trained some other business units in, in threat intelligence. And one of the things that I tell them is, you have to have multiple eyes on on a problem to give you a better analysis. And, and that's absolutely true. And it goes back to the mindset biased uh, issues that every human being has. When you have 10 analysts and you're working a complex problem, 
then if all 10 of you agree on something, then something's off. There should be, because your mindsets and biases, differences of opinion. And if everybody is engaged in, in, in a problem and you come to the same solution, you know, then you have to start looking at groupthink as being part of the problem. So, you know, when you're approaching other business units and other people and so on, you should set up some kind of a formally structure to where you can do an assessment or you can input data or take data back from another entity, another person and so on as part of that analysis process. And you're going to have disagreements. That's part of that's part of what it is. But it gives you better understanding from other perspective, you know, about that particular problem and, and the analysis that you're doing. So when you have the capacity to include other people into the analysis, it's it's a good thing. It gives you more perspective. Um, it can often bring other things to the table that you might have missed. And that might be based on your mindset and, and biases that, that you have as an analyst. Uh, in fact, in some cases, you should take someone from another unit that has no knowledge as to what you're uh, analyzing and, and see what they think. Because oftentimes they'll have other perspectives. So that that's one of the problems is a lot of the intelligence teams and organizations are really too small to really be able to effectively analyze more complex problems. Yeah, that's interesting. And I suppose the, the process is as important as the outcome sometimes. Sure, yeah, yeah. One of the things we wanted to focus on today was uh, something that you describe as adversarial focus. Can you uh, fill us in what that's all about? Sure. Basically, adversarial focus is who's targeting you. People don't just wake up and, and say, well, today, well, maybe some people do, but for the most part, your more sophisticated attackers uh, are very focused and targeting. So when you start looking at, at threat in general, you have lower tiered threat, which I, I call one one two tier which basically includes your script kitties, your single developers um, that are acting as lone wolf attackers, simple criminal attacks, disgruntled employees, uh, disgruntled customers, uh, things of that nature. And, and their targeting is all across the board. But your automated, they have the capacity to attack known vulnerabilities. So your automated processes should be able to deal with your, your lower tier attackers. Your, your tiers three and four move into more organization. And their focus is on generating revenue. And, and they do their own targeting. They pick their targets. The tier four groups are, are larger organized crime groups that can be very, very sophisticated. But they go through a targeting process to determine who they're going to have focus to. And then your tier fives and six, which is your nation state sponsored, nation state uh, attackers, they get tasked to collect. They get tasked to uh, support things like five-year plans and national strategies and things of that nature. So... Their focus is, is, is much more defined. But adversarial focus is all about understanding who has focus to you as an organization. And each organization is going to have some level of adversarial focus. And so how do you come up with that list of who's targeting you? And then how do you rank the people on that list? Uh, so you have to understand what you do as an organization. You have to understand your lines of business, your critical functions, what your roadmap is. And, you know, then you can start to figure out who might have interest in, in, in those different aspects. And then you can start to do the research to develop who has focus in that, in that particular, in those particular areas. Tools like intelligence tools that give the capability of scraping the open web and dark web uh, are, are pretty critical at that point in pulling some of this information in. They can give you historical context. They can give you some trend capability. And using that, you can start to develop some adversarial focus from an early warning perspective. An example would be every five years, China does a five-year plan. When you go back historically and look at the attacks that they've done, 
uh, you can correlate those to five-year plan requirements. So they're filling their their national strategy requirements through through attacking networks and IP theft and things of that nature. And there's different ways that you can determine focus from different groups. Uh, but the data, a lot of the data exists. You just have to know where to go to look for it. Is there a danger of your team getting distracted by bright, shiny objects? Oh, sure there is, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's a problem too, especially with smaller teams. When I was doing training, I, I would tell people that, you know, from a timing perspective, uh, you have tactical intelligence, you have operational intelligence, and you have strategic intelligence. So within your tactical component, you have two pieces. You have, uh, you have current ops and you have future ops. So current ops is normally zero to 24 hours. That's what's happening right now. And then future apps is, is anywhere from 24 to five days. O- operational would be five days on out to a quarter. And then your strategic goes beyond that. But it gives you the capability of having a person fill a role, either at the tactical level uh, and so on, and focus specifically on that. So when something does occur and I collect some intelligence from the current perspective, I can hand that off to or I give access to uh, somebody who's working future ops and they can integrate that into what they've been working on in the short term and further add some more context relative to some of what they see. So when you're doing something like that, you're, you're, you're maintaining your capability of having a, a current capability, uh, but you're also maintaining the capability of having a future capability in the short term. And then, you know, your senior, your more senior people would be working uh, some of the more operational or strategic aspects uh, to develop new signposts or indicators relative to what, people doing tactical collection analysis have already done. You know, you can implement that capability, but but it does take a bigger team in order to cover that kind of a timeline. In terms of um, your advice for someone who's uh, thinking about, you know, spinning up a threat intelligence team or, or um, finding someone to provide that sort of information for them, do you have any guidance for what the best way is to approach it? Do a lot of research and find someone who, who's done intelligence and, you know, have a conversation with them. So it, as, as an example, a lot of people will go out to the internet and do some research and, and they'll come across intelligence cycles. And the current cycle that most people use is it revolves around planning and, and requirements and then collection and then uh, processing and exploitation analysis and then dissemination. The problem is that model is a very linear model that has to fit a very lateral problem. So it's more difficult to operationalize when you're in a commercial entity. Because uh, you have limited resources, um, you have things like budget, reduced staff, you don't have that capability to task for collections. So it's harder to implement that kind of a cycle. But you're not going to know that in, in, until you talk to somebody that's actually done it. So, you know, I would say do the research and then talk to someone who's done intelligence and has experience in intelligence to help you set up a, set up a plan. How do you make it so that it's all right for people to be comfortable with uncertainty? That's difficult. Um, so... The thing is, you're always going to have intelligence failures. It, it's a part of it's a part of the process. And you know, in today's workplace, people want 100. percent They want to they want you to be right. They want you to be right all the time. But that's not a realistic goal. You're going to have some failures. Uh, the goal is to be accurate and have more successes than you have failures, and to have more significant successes. So, you know, part of the training has to deal with that mindset to where I, I always need to be right and I, I need to get away from being 100%. In the intelligence world, once you get to about 70%, that's about when you need to start taking action because if you're waiting for the extra 
10, 15, 20%, you're going to miss your window of opportunity to actually put a control in place to deal with something that's coming down the road. Hmm. And sometimes that it's, it's hard sometimes to get people to think that way because uh, they want to be right. And, you know, it, it's not wrong to want to be right. But the reality is, is you're always going to be wrong at some point. Having a candid conversation about capability and about what you're going to get, you know, because intelligence deals with levels of confidence as opposed to this is right 100% or it's wrong 100%. There's a little bit of gray, you know, and, and, and a lot of people don't like the gray part. So whoever's your team lead has to be comfortable with working with a lot of the gray part. And he has to mentor or guide the other people to be able to accept the fact that you're not always going to be right. And that's not bad. That That's human nature. But, you know, training them and giving them techniques that's going to be make them more effective and more accurate when they do their analysis. And, and they have to get away from going with the flow. Their analysis might be 100% opposite of what everybody else is saying. You know, when you look at some of the attacks that have happened in the past over the past year, the initial set of information in a lot of cases is not correct. But everybody wants to be at the very front of reporting. So you see a lot of information that's not necessarily accurate that kind of firms up over time. You know, so when you're doing an initial assessment, you, you have to caveat that with this is what our current intelligence is telling us. Um, but we see these things that might be of interest that could alter the assessment. And you have to do the assessment over time. If you're just trying to focus on a point in time, then, you know, you're potentially missing a lot of data that could change the analysis and, and the accuracy of, uh, of the analysis itself. You have to have the ability to let go of um, the assumptions that you'd previously made that may have been wrong. That's exactly true. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Our thanks to Greg Reith for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.